0: printed off a sheet if you have it that has both Psalm 8 and 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. And we'll be in both today, but we'll read uh, Psalm 8 to begin with. And uh, as you know, we've been going through these articles of uh, affirmation and denial from Ligonier on Christology. And today we'll be in our final one, which is the last statement, which is Article 26. I think that's also in the bulletin, correct? So uh, if you'll join me in affirming and confessing that together before we get started this morning. We affirm that when Jesus Christ has conquered all His enemies, He will hand over His kingdom to the Father. We affirm that in the new heaven and the new earth, God will be with His people, and that believers will see Jesus Christ face to face, will be made like Him, and will enjoy Him forever. We deny that there is any other hope for humanity or any name or way in which salvation may be found except in Jesus Christ alone. The statement we have so far covered the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the work of Christ, and today will be the triumph of Christ. So before we get into our text, let's pray. Our Father, we are all here this morning seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at your right hand. We have many distractions, many worldly concerns, many sins which afflict us. So we pray that by your Spirit this morning you would help us, you would illumine us and teach us to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For that is where our life is hidden. We eagerly anticipate the day, that which is hidden and appears, that Jesus comes. And Lord, we pray that He come quickly, that we may too appear with Him in glory. In His name we pray. Amen. Stand, if you would, for the reading of God's Word from Psalm chapter 8. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. The end of statement number 26 reads again, We deny that there is any other hope for humanity or any name or way in which salvation may be found except in Jesus Christ alone. No other hope. So the question for today is, do we really believe this. And here, here's a test that I find helpful is that we look into our own hearts, that we examine our own thoughts. Examine the contents of your thought life. What are those uh, if-onlys that you have in your mind? If only my house, dot, 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 I'd be content. If only my job, if only my kids, if only my spouse or my parent, if only our country, if if only i what are those if onlys that if if you had that hope secured you'd be content for me i'm a i'm a fixer by trade you know I, as my other job is to to fix things and to build things and i think men especially naturally we want to fix everything so if there's a problem let's brainstorm it let's figure out a solution Let's fix it. So much of my brain space in my life is given over to the solving of the problems that I see, and especially the problems in my life that make me the most uncomfortable. So my conclusion, then, is that my hope, in some sense, that my hope in myself crowds out my hope in Christ. My hope in my own ability to solve and fix my own problems crowds out my future hope and reward in Him. That's my problem. That's one of the many items in my dirty laundry basket. I'm sure all of us are afflicted with similar things. Maybe we're afflicted with anger because our hope maybe isn't in ourselves, but in other people. And frankly, people always fail. Or maybe our hope is in a false perception of God he really loved me, then I wouldn't have to endure, dot, dot, dot. Oddly enough, Christmas time, there's more distractions crammed in to our thought box than normal, and and oddly enough, they crowd out Jesus even more. If only the food turns out just so, then I can rest content and, and think about Jesus. Or if only that that one family dynamic part of our family doesn't flare up this weekend, we'll be good. If only the gifts I get are what I really want, or if only people applaud my gift-giving or my hospitality. See, the point is, true hope is heavenward hope. It's a future focus, and is completely absorbed in Christ. True hope is heavenward hope and it's future focused, completely absorbed in Christ. So this morning we're looking forward to the end of all things, which might be strange right at Christmas time, but but I pray that our hope and our contentment will be intensified as we enjoy looking back at the birth of Jesus this weekend with our families over the next couple days. I hope that today as we look forward that will give us a reason to hope a greater reason to hope because that little baby boy boy born 2000 years ago he does give us hope but the question is why is it sentimental feelings about babies that give us sweet hope because i have one right there if you want to see one so why the question is why does jesus give us hope how does he give us hope and the answer to that question really is a lifelong pursuit to answer that question. But we'll just start with the obvious this morning. The obvious is, point number one here, we have issues. We have big issues. So, let's return back to Psalm 8. And you might think it's a strange place to turn to discuss the fact that we have issues. But I hope you'll hear me out here. Go back to verse 5. Salma says, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, that is, man or mankind, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Who comes to mind when you read that psalm? Jesus comes to mind, right? He's the first person that comes to mind, and rightly so. But what about another person? What about Adam? See, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, and 26 through 28, we read this, and it's strikingly similar. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens." and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see that? That's striking similarity to Psalm chapter 8. So I think we should think also of Adam when we read Psalm chapter 8. In fact, G.K. Beale calls Psalm 8 an ideal Adam psalm. An ideal Adam song. This this is what Adam was meant to be. Adam was supposed to be God's authority on earth, his if you will, deputy as God's image-bearer on earth. But he failed. He was supposed to be God's prophet, priest, and king, protecting the garden, cultivating it, and caring for it, and leading God's people. But he failed. He fell into sin. And he failed to guard the garden. Now, humanity has continued, by God's grace, to subdue the earth and fill it. Um, But if we think that we as humanity have arrived at this Psalm 8 ideal or this Genesis 1 ideal that's presented in the Bible, then we delude ourselves. We are not there yet. Even as Hebrews says in a Christological uh, context, it recognizes the incomplete nature of our dominion over the earth when it says at present we do not yet see everything in subjection under him. Even with Christ, we're not there Yet, The scary thing about Psalm 8 and the thing that tells us that, that we have problems, big issues, is that it is meant to be a reflection on all mankind as children of Adam. And the truth is, it's not. The fall of Adam left us with a great many problems. And not just personal problems but systemic human problems. Uh, at work we have this big machine. We call it the Grove. It's this big boom arm with a basket and we use it. We go around and, and uh, trim trees and we can reach out and it can reach all the way, way above the treetops, these big ash trees. It, it's really large and we can go out and get in there and, and creep in and, and trim the trees and trim them back. And We've been working through the summers to try to trim the trees because they're just out of control. and We're kind of in a rush and so Reed Miller and I were up there one day, and we'd go up, and it has, the base of it can turn like this. So you'd go up and go in and trim, and then all of a sudden the, the, the base would only turn one direction. <laughs> we get stuck. And so you'd have to go up over the trees and go left and go all the way around in a circle to bring yourself back down. And it was irritating, because we're in a hurry. We're trying to get these trees trimmed. And, and I, I said to Reed, you know, have you ever noticed there's always some problem something that gets in the way of your work, something, some thorn in the ground. And I believe that. I believe that those things, there's always a problem with every job, no matter how small, that makes it take twice as long. That, that bolt that's stuck in the car when you're mechanicking. <laughs> it always happens. Because the truth is, because of Adam's sin, the ground fights back. And the problem for we, for me, as a fixer, is that there will be always something else to fix. Because we live in a broken world, and if my contentment rests in the repair of the world around me, I'll be waiting a long time. My point being here, give up on yourself, and give up on humanity, that we will be able to pull ourselves up on our own strength. It's not going to happen. Such hopes are false hopes. For example, the the gospel of hope in communism or socialism is a gospel of man's ability to do right. Or the gospel of hope in self-esteem that we see today. All kids need to do is is believe in themselves and they can do anything. The gospel of hope in humanity's ability to unify, to work together for the common good is a pipe dream. Michael? Michael? got me into Star Trek a little bit, and uh, if you you watch Star Trek, you'll hear them talking about, well, humanity overcame all this a long time ago, we stopped fighting a hundred years ago, we overcame, right, that's like the, the ideal, if we can just overcome, I mentioned last week the podcast I've been listening to, the end of the world, where there's all these risks that could end humanity. And his solution, at the very end, he tried to offer some solutions, and there wasn't really a whole lot of hope, except humanity needs to unite to fight these risks. I mean, really? You really believe that that's going to happen? But these hopes are really the best that humanity can produce, apart from Christ. And I've often thought that if I weren't a Christian, that's the only place I could head if, if, if I wanted to have any hope at all. But they're false hopes. And false hope crowds out true hope. The real hope is only found in that first person we should think of when we read psalm 8. In Jesus Christ. He is the one who accomplished all that Adam could not have and much more. And we'll get to him more momentarily, but for now I just want us to think about Adam's failure. To let that sink in. Because the implications of Adam's failure are enormous. And they are such to leave us with no real natural hope. We should let the condition of the world grieve us. And and let humanity repulse us. and, And let go of that high view of mankind that we're all prone in our nature to have. Including ourselves we need to be acutely aware that we are all sons and daughters of Adam so that we have big issues. And despite our best efforts, humanity will not arrive at that psalmate ideal, this side of glory. That may sound grim, but I don't believe that that is a dark or hopeless view of humanity at all because it steers our hearts toward truth toward hope that is not distracted, and toward true hope. So let's consider now uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 24-28, um, which applies Psalm 8 directly to Jesus. So we'll read all of these verses. twenty. Actually, we'll start back in 22. I may have messed Michael up with the bulletin, but I want to read from 22 on. But the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. Last week in in Sunday school, we got into a bit of a discussion about the the Son of God, and we started talking a little bit about the issue of the eternal subordination of the Son and the problem that that is—that the Son might be eternally subordinate in some sense to the Father. And and this text really this week was—it was a stumper for me as I had that issue in the back of my head, and I was reading this text. And uh so I I'm going to take a bit of a theological rabbit trail here and I know because I know you that you are theological nerds as I am so you will forgive me for the theological rabbit trail. But I think also at the end of this if we can hang on through this this uh rabbit trail that we'll have a clearer understanding of what the text is saying about the triumph of Christ on the other side. So a few things to take note of here. And uh, I spent a lot of time this week on this, this issue, so this is very brief. If you have more questions, we can talk later. But first, all of this is couched in the context of the first and the second Adams. We saw that in verse 22. And in this window to the eschaton, to the future that Paul has given us, uh, he allows us a glimpse of the end, of, of what's the, what is the end going to be like. And if we're going to understand it rightly, we need to recognize that the the Christological elements contained here are carried out in this sphere of Christ's humiliation and exaltation as the second Adam and as the mediator. That is to say, these events don't really represent the natural economy of the Godhead, how the Godhead works, but rather the conclusion of the mediator's work in saving and restoring humanity. The second thing we need to realize here is that it is the Father who commissioned the Son. We saw in Psalm 8, and in this text, the Father puts all things under the Son. He has the right to put all things under the Son, excepting himself, of course. And as we see in the Gospels, particularly in John, when Jesus was here as a man, he was under the authority of God the Father. The Father sent him as his apostle. Jesus says he only does the will of his Father. So again, this is not a description of the natural, eternal function of the Trinity, but of the Son as God-man. The third thing that we need to recognize is that what we read in the, the, the affirmation, that Christ will hand over the kingdom to his Father. So the reign of Christ as his father's deputy, again, is a temporary one. At least it has temporary elements to it. As we saw earlier, he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So there are eternal elements as well. But Christ's mediatorial role, as we know it, will come to an end because, as we'll see shortly, we will see God as he is. We don't need that go-between only because of the work of Christ. We will be in the very presence of God on the merits of Christ, so we won't need that go-between. Thus Christ, having accomplished His mission, and the Father, having placed all things under His feet, will restore the kingdom to the rightful potentate. So it's important here to understand that the session of Christ, the seating at the right hand of the Father, the session of Christ at God's right hand was, as we just read, and I never really noticed this before this week, until, that word until, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Or as Psalm 110 reads, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Calvin is helpful here. He says, Christ therefore shall reign, this is from the Institutes, shall reign until he appear to judge the world, inasmuch as, according to the measure of our feeble capacity, he now connects us with the Father. But when as partakers of the heavenly glory we shall see God as he is, then Christ, having accomplished the office of mediator, shall cease to be the vicegerent of of the Father, and will be content with the glory which he possessed before the world was. He goes on to say, A temporary authority has been commanded by the Father until His divine majesty shall be held face to face. His giving up of the kingdom to the Father, so far from impairing His majesty, will give a brighter manifestation of it. God will then cease to be the head of Christ, and Christ's own Godhead will then shine forth itself, whereas now it is in a manner veiled. So how does what what Calvin just said, that that His glory will actually be increased, how how does that square with verse 28 where Paul says that even Jesus will be subjected to the Father when He returns the kingdom to the Father? That's a difficult problem. We know from Scripture that the second person of the Trinity is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. There must not be then any eternal subordination of the Son or even an everlasting subordination into perpetuity. The answer to me, as best my feeble mind can g- grapple with it, rests in this whole notion of Christ's fulfilling or accomplishing the office of mediator. That is to say, the consummation of all Christ's prophetic, priestly, and kingly work as the second Adam is the day he lays it all at the Father's feet. This subjection to the Father is not one of of ontological submission, but one of ultimate, triumphant, final obedience to the Father as the second and last Adam. So, G.K. Beale puts it thoughtfully here. He says, At the end of history, Christ will come a final time to consummate all things. In this respect, He will have brought to completion His Adamic rule in in this redemptive historical age. In particularly, he will complete multiplying his progeny by giving them physical resurrection life. And he will finish the victory and rule that he began to accomplish over the enemy, including death, at his final coming. And he will then again be seen as God's completely faithful Adamic son. So all of that to say, the issue is dealt with in my mind by saying this this is Christ in his humanity and his role as the second Adam and his submission is in that role to the father so coming out the other side of the the theological tunnel here what what is the takeaway my takeaway is that when we confessed together earlier that Jesus would hand over the kingdom to his father we were confessing the certainty of his final triumph We can rest confidently and contented knowing the end of the story. Jesus definitively accomplishes all that he came to do. He is that triumphant Adam. The Psalm 8 Adam. The dominion. I think the part of the reason we get caught up in false hopes is that we don't really understand. We don't see our purpose in the world. But when we know the end, we know the purpose. Stated another way, an eschatological hope is also a teleological hope. It has been said, we can be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. It has also been said, we do not want to be so earthly minded that we are no heavenly good. I'll err to the latter. <laughs> Colossians 3, 1-4 If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So the first point this morning was that we have problems, big problems. I forgot to mention the second point is that Jesus is the good Adam. Jesus is the good Adam. Thirdly here is that we reap the benefits of Christ's triumph. Flip over if you have your Bible to Revelation 22, 1 through 5. reap the benefits of Christ's triumph. The Apostle John recounts in Revelation 22, 1 through 5, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You see the imagery there of the Garden of Eden reborn, the the river of life, the tree of life with its fruit. God again is in the midst of His people as though He were walking through the garden in the cool of the evening. And that covenant promise, that great covenant promise, I will be a God to you and you will be my people, is fulfilled in an an ultimate way. You see there that this mediatorial role of Christ is accomplished. He succeeded. So that we see and are in the very presence of God. And in some sense it says here that the people of God will reign. That finally we will have that Psalm 8 dominion restored to us as Adam was meant to have. And there we are no longer in Adam, but in Christ. Because of his work, we are restored. And forever and ever we will be in the presence of God and of the Lamb. So that to me is real hope. All of our deepest longings will be fulfilled at the end of all things. We'll have life instead of that curse, death. Death is defeated. Life eternal will abound in resurrection energy. We'll have light, no more darkness. We'll see things as they truly are, and not in a mirror dimly. We'll have true illumination, understanding, and freedom from sin and lies and will stand in the very presence of God. Last point briefly here before we close number 4 is to set your whole hope on Christ's triumph. Set your whole hope on his triumph. You guys know my favorite verse is 1 Peter 1:13. Therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love that because how often do you get that fully? We, we know what we're supposed to do. Set our hope fully. Beware of those hopes which crowd out true hope. Beware of the distractions of this earth. Nothing is worth putting our hope in but the return and triumph of our Savior. When He appears, we too will appear with Him in glory. So, set your hope on that grace. Place it there. Put all your eggs on it. This is the only hope that will come through in the end. And that fear that we will miss out, we will not miss out if we hope in that grace. We will not find ourselves wanting. What I always find when I chase the world is that it never satisfies. It's bright, it's shiny. But I always want more, bright and shiny. A life lived for the next one is not as glamorous. It's self-sacrificial. But it's satisfying. It leads to contentment and to purpose in life. And it leads to a simple life of faith, gratitude, and obedience. Hebrews says, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and you will never be disappointed in this life or the next. So I'll conclude by asking, does the birth of Christ give you hope? It should, for as it says, there is no other hope for humanity or any other name or way in which salvation may be found except in Jesus Christ alone. So as you look back this week upon the birth of Jesus over the next couple of days may propel you to do and to long for that heavenly city. And for that day when He triumphantly hands over the kingdom to the Father and we live eternally face to face with Jesus and enjoy Him forever. Amen.